So I've always looked at innovation. There's two things. You have imagination and innovation, right? It's the cross point is in my mind what innovation is, where you take that idea, something that you thought up. I, I literally have a little brown book. It's about this big. Um, it's about the size of a deck of cards. It's leather bound, and it literally has just a bunch of ideas in it. And it's that cross point over from imagination to innovation. And innovation to me is something where you take it to that next level. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's the place where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, and the how. We explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Hello, Jesse. Hey, Kevin. How are you? Good. And we've got a fun episode today. Can you tell me a little bit about our guest? Sure. So I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, Eric and I have known each other for a few years now. And at MUSC, we talk a lot about our tripartite mission. So research, education, and then clinical care. And Eric is one of those unique individuals that's really innovating in all three dimensions, uh, sometimes at the same exact time, um, with lots of projects going on, tons of ideas, and he brings a ton of energy to everything that he does. So I I have no doubt that today is going to be a fun episode to, to record and then to listen to later. All right, Eric Madrinsky, let's dive in. Well, Eric Madrinsky, welcome to the MUSC Podcast Studio. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic. We're glad that you're here, man. And can you start just by telling us your title? We, we were looking over that in the interim here, and uh, I would like for you to pronounce it. Sure. It's a little bit of a tongue twister like my last name, but I'm the systems director of EHS, which is Environmental Health and Safety and Emergency Management for Ambulatory. Okay, can you give us that in lay terms? What do you do here at MUSC? Sure. So if you think about it, uh, my job is broken up into three different positions. We have um, occupational health and safety for our our care team. So what does that mean? That means are they safe at work or is their work environment um, somewhere that they feel safe in and are actually safe in? Environmental safety, so we're looking at biohazardous waste, chemical waste, all the kind of nasty stuff that we as a health system or other health systems around the country produce. How do we get rid of that properly right, and, right. and treat that properly um, and meet our regulations. And then we have emergency management, which now I'm not going to say the H word, um, you know, that we're all accustomed <laughs> to down here about this time. Yeah. But, you know, things like that, disasters, either um, being stalked by a turtle like the hurricane, or if it's something as an incident, you know, such as a few years ago, we had a car running through the front of one of our clinics. So wow. we have emergencies that happen throughout the health system. And the job of emergency management is to kind of help the organization through that to make sure that our care team are taken care of, but also the continuity of operations. All right. It sounds like a lot. It is, but it's fun. You are also an adjunct instructor here at the school. Can you tell me a little bit about that? The two courses that we taught um, or are teaching are uh, leadership and emergency management and emergency preparedness for healthcare professionals. And it was actually born out of COVID. And, you know, it was always been a dream of mine to teach at a higher level um, of academia, but um, we are teaching future leaders here at MUSC, but we never really gave them that next step of 
what to do during a disaster or instance, what to look for, continuity of operations, things that we talk about every day here at MUSC, but we're really not passing along to our students. So um, Mary Malden, who has retired, uh, she came out to our West Ashley testing site, um, and I didn't know who she was at the time other than when she introduced herself, but um, I pitched an idea. I was like, I'd really like to teach this class. A couple weeks later, she came back, and she's like, what do you think about maybe potentially doing a pilot class? Um, so that class, we had 165 students sign up within the first half an hour. It's the only time wow. that in my life I've ever felt like a rock star because we <laughs> filled up our class within a half an hour. But um, consistently that class has been around 160, 170 students. And then we brought in our next class, which is said is a leadership class. And each one of the students in that class are assigned a position in a health system. So one student could be the COO, another one could be a director of radiology or supply chain. And they have to research that. Uh, position. And what they do is they actually reach out to other health systems, so Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, and they interview that person and say, what do you do during normal operations? What do you do during emergency operations? And then they maybe talk about an incident that has happened there. Then they come back to us, and then we start running incidents in-house tabletop-wise, and the students love it. We actually do a role-playing. Role, yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. yeah, so we're able to... Um, we call in at 7.30 at night because there was an incident that happened at the hospital, um, and then they have to work through that together. And it really gives them that systematic approach, but also gives them that teamwork because the information you might know um, is vital to that incident. And if you're not there or we're not talking, that's not going to go very smoothly. So it's not about the coursework of trying to stress them out and write papers and all that stuff. No, no, it's all about teamwork. It's about that behavioral change of preparedness and teamwork. I've seen some uh, video clips of Eric's classes, um, and I love the teaching approach that he takes because it's less about sitting at a table and studying and regurgitating facts. I'm back to the instructor, but really about creating this experience that you know really enables them to go out into their professional career and feel more prepared um, on it. And I think about the one video that I think we played in a presentation talking about Eric's work and um, they have to play the press uh, sort of secretary for the hospital and actually do um, do a press conference um, and he has them actually standing up in a microphone and there's a whole panel of individuals with cameras pointing at them to really sort of give them this immersive experience as to what that would really feel like if this was your job and I thought what an incredible opportunity um, for a student to be able to really sort of dive in and, and have this type of hands-on experience um, to really prepare them uh, more effectively when they go out into the world. I mean, being prepared is applies to every area of life, right? And so tell me why, just while we're talking about students, why you thought it was important to get them in on it. I mean, obviously, like we said, everybody needs to be prepared, but why did you think that was a good part of their education here at MUSC? Well, I think we're, we're preparing them for every other aspect of it, of life and being a leader. And I, and I really true be, and truly believe that about MUSC. We're really preparing these students to be leaders. And the young leaders that we have here, we're preparing them to be even more senior leaders. Um, but are we doing enough? And, you know, looking at South Carolina and whole, I mean, we could have wildfires, we could have hurricanes, we could have earthquakes, we could have uh, winter weather, which South Carolina is not very good about handling Correct. winter weather sometimes. <laughs> um, when You know it's bad when people are hand shoveling assault on the freeway bridges, you know what I mean? Mm, we're just not right, prepared right. for it down here, right? So we're doing the best we can. And um, But, you know, 
giving them that next step. Um, you know, we're not going to give them all the answers, right? Each incident's going to be different. I mean, we can prepare for a meteor striking right, somewhere. Right. You know, it, that doesn't make sense. You know, we want to look at an all-hazards approach of stuff that actually could potentially hurt us, whether it be a fire, evacuation, severe weather, earthquake kind of give them the tools and something that they can stick away and be like, okay, we talked about that. But most importantly, we're giving them that systematic approach how to handle those incidents. So when it comes to a car driving through a building or a fire happening or an active assailant at one of our facilities that there's less panic, more actually, how do we get help? Let's get help here and let's move on and move through that incident. And that just goes back to the whole leadership piece. You know, like you said, we're, we're raising leaders here at MUSC, not just one dimensional. And I would imagine that, um, that people who are willing to stand up and take a lead in a crisis situation are gold. Like few and far between, I would think. Hopefully, if you're if you're uh, what you're doing bears fruit, it'll be more. And I, I think that one of the other things that you reinforce with the students that you're training is that um, it's behavior change and understanding their role as a leader, but also. Um, uh, teaching them to make effective decisions and the right decision in those situations. Um, and I recall an anecdote that you were sharing, and, and I forget which type of incidents you were actually teaching them about, but it had to do with like, so like maybe it was a you know a bomb going off in a building, and lots of students wanted to run in to help, yeah. <laughs> and that's not the right answer. And so not only is it about finding individuals who are willing to step up and lead, or who are capable of doing it if they are the de facto leader, but also arming them with the set of critical thinking skills that is necessary to do it effectively and safely. And and I don't, you know, it's not innate, right? So we don't yeah. always know what to do in those situations. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, one of the things we do with the students and is it's kind of like a what would you do video. And we did a video of one of the buildings have an explosion out the side of it. Um, Jonathan Coltis did a cool CGI video <laughs> of it. And we asked the students, and it turns out to be a poll, and it's actually pretty interesting to see their results. So um, we asked the students, said, if this happened, what would you do? Would you go in and help, or would you it, like retreat and make sure you're okay, that type of thing? 95% of the 165 students said that they would go in and help. Um, and that's an overwhelming majority, obviously, 95 yeah. of them already. Bunch but of heroes. Yeah, right. Like. But the problem is, is you don't, what, the, what you're not thinking of, we're, we're looking at the patient at that point, right? What yeah. you're not looking at is, is there a secondary device for this potentially terrorism? Mm. So we talk about, we actually had a bomb squad member actually do a video of what you should do. So we take the incident and then we pair that along with a professional, like a bomb squad, uh, you know, technician or somebody else. And they would explain what you should do and why you shouldn't do the things that you think you mm. should do, like run in and going and help. Um, you know, some of the things you talked about was, is, was it a terrorist event? You know, sometimes you'll have a secondary device that is meant for the first responders. So you go in and try to help. Now you have another the device goes off and now your casualty rate's a lot right. higher. Um, you look at, is there going to be another another explosion, whether it be a chemical explosion that caused it or a gas explosion? So now you're in there trying to help and then that you might have another explosion or is there a chemical leak that you know you're going to expose yourself to? And you just had an explosion in a building. Is that building going to fall? Mm. So these three things we just brought out in front of the students and we had really good discussions about why you don't want to do that um, and what the proper thing to do. And it was just, it was I think there was crickets on the on the class for the first part of like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. And we got into that discussion. And that's the point is just kind of getting your 
expanding your mind a little bit more and just trying to say, okay, this is why we do the things that we do, and this is why it's important to have that experience, right? We can have as much education as possible, but you got to have experience with built into that. I always call it street cred. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, like the kind of education that really comes alive in your mind. Uh, tell me about the behavior change part, because it seems like what we were just discussing was more informational. Talk about the actual, what, what behavior change are you after? Sure. It's the behavior change of being prepared. Um, okay. You know, for example, it's funny. I always get pushback from the students on this assignment because it is it is elementary. I'm not even kidding. Um, I make them come up with a communications plan. And what that communications plan is, I mean, it's everybody. Who do you call for if you have a pet, if it's sick? Who do you call, you know, if you're sick or where do you go for this? So they have this one sheet document from ready.gov and they have to go in and fill it out. And I always get pushed back, you know, why would I do something like this? I'm much higher. This is something I would do in elementary school. And, and I get those emails. So what I ended up doing was putting out a video, and I do every time now that we do this assignment, saying I understand that you guys know how to put, uh, you know, numbers on a piece of paper. That's not the point. The point of this assignment is a behavior change of being prepared. And it's behavior change of saying, instead of the situation happening and then panicking because I don't know who to call, or most importantly, look at it for at this example. We have students from all around the world that come here to MUSC for education. They're by themselves here. So how do we get a hold of their parents or family members? Or how do we get a hold of them for their parents or family members if, we, if the student's not answering their phone? Like, we got to have some type of plan here. So once we explain it to them, a lot of light bulbs go off and be like, okay, I get it. And I was like, come on, that's super easy A, right, just to do the work. <laughs> but yet now you have a plan that you put on refrigerators. And as soon as I said that, I was actually getting pictures of people's nice. plans on their refrigerators or in places around their house. So it was pretty exciting to see that. But it, like I said, it's just that mindset of before I go in somewhere, you know, am I ready for this situation? Um, give you another example. Uh, mental rehearsals. We talk about mental rehearsals for active shooter or an active assailant. And it could take 30 seconds. And you will you can hear about that on our podcast. We have an emergency management podcast that we're coming out. So hopefully you all tune in for that. But we talk about mental rehearsals. And it's something that takes 30 seconds of where's the exits in the building? Or, hey, I'm going to go stand at, stay at some hotel in Atlanta, for example, the one Omni, which is like hundreds of stories tall. Like I pay to get on the highest floor because I think it's cool. But it's like, how do you get out if there's a fire? You know, where are the stairwells? So those mental rehearsals of where are the exits? How do I get out of here? Where are fire extinguishers? It, it's just something that it's a mental change, um, a behavioral change in your mind of like, OK, that's where that stuff is. I like the way that it translates so nicely into things that we should be doing at home anyways, right? Like we should all have a fire escape plan and have a plan on where you're going to meet, you know, outside your house. And um, it's something that I think most of us grew up doing, you know, and having our parents coach us through. And so it, it's interesting that we don't necessarily make that leap to say, oh, we should be doing the same thing as an adult in different locations, or I should do the same thing at work, right? So for some reason, we, at least myself, have sort of thought about that sort of re preparedness as, you know, I don't know, it's something that we did as kids in training at home, well, but it's critically important. Yeah, and you brought up a good point. You know, we talk about, you know, one of the topics they have to come up with an a, a emergency action plan or emergency plan. A lot of them choose like a fire plan for home. And I think that's vitally important. I mean, coming from my life in the fire service before MUSC, 
it's something that I could talk about for hours. I promise I won't do that now. But, um, you know, one of the things we talk about is, and, and even in our education and our clinics for fire safety, I'm going to teach you how to be safe here at work. But most importantly, I want to do education about being safe at home. If you're safe at home, you're coming to work and you're bringing those good habits to work here. Same thing with the students. If you're being safe at home, you're going to be able to come here to school. You're going to be able to ha- bring those good habits, that behavior change. Well, this is an innovation podcast, and it sounds just from context that that's what you do all the time, but there's some specific innovations that Jesse was telling me about um, going back to the COVID era that I'd love to hear about. Can you talk a little bit about the the pain point that you were experiencing with just setting up the, the COVID drive through station, and then you know you can progress that through your, your isolation booth and all of the numerous things that you solved along the way? So, yeah, I... How do you take an unknown situation? We we know there was a, we know it was spreading, right? This COVID nineteen, it was happening, and it was starting slowly our way. And, it, and it's interesting as you talk about when it was overseas, not affecting our country. Everybody was like, ah, nah, it'll be fine, you know that type of thing. But as it got bigger, we were like, okay, now it's you know everybody's like, well, let's pay attention to this thing. So we've we had meetings, um, kind of about kind of what we were going to do as a health system, but. When it came to how are we going to care for our patients, whether it be testing, whether it be fast forward at the time, was it going to be a year, was it going to be two years when the vaccine, if we were going to have a vaccine for this, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do it effectively and safely? So we looked at the model of what about potentially a drive-through? You know, um, other countries were doing it, but I think we were the first on in the United States to actually do a drive-through couple of virtual urgent care. And the reason why we did it that way was because we don't want these patients that are sick, we want to give them help, but we don't want them in our clinics and spreading this to everybody, right? So it's like, how do we do this? And how do we do it in a way that we can see a lot of patients, um, but also do this safely? So we thought about a drive-through and it actually came from a chicken sandwich. We were <laughs> It's almost funny, a buddy of mine, AJ Keen from Belfour, we were talking and we wanted to, we were gonna get something for lunch because we we're just kind of just brainstorming how we're going to do this and we're about Chick-fil-A and we're like okay so they do a drive-through and look at they do it quickly and efficiently so how are we going to do our drive-through and that's kind of where our model for the drive-through we knew we were going to focus in on that so then we were like all right we need to move a lot of cars and you can't do that when everybody's in line so we were like what about a pit stop because you can move a lot of cars very quickly but you're never waiting for the person ahead of you so what we did is we designed our pods in a linear form on either side of the kind of the testing site and the cars are able to dip into each of the pods and then leave when they're done but you're never waiting for the car in front of you so what that did was gave us the ability to move a lot of cars quickly and never really have a traffic jam because some cars would come in, you'd have four people in the car, which would take longer than the one person in another car. You'd always have folks that don't like the nose swap, so that takes a little longer, right. too. So <laughs> I never liked it, no, right? So no, no. Um, so those take a little longer, too. So we make sure that we, we're giving our patients the, the amount of time and the quality health care that MUSC wants to always give our patients with that and that drive through But we're also still helping other patients along the way. And at one point, I mean, we were well over thousands of cars, um, you know, on a daily basis coming in and out of that. The funny story with that was, and Tom Crawford will always tell the story. I I find it hilarious every time, but, um, you know, he came, he came out to tour the site and he called us on, okay, so let me, I'll back up. So we started 
the talks about a month before you know we started with the whole plans for this and um, we were kind of all put on hold because we didn't know if we were going to continue you know going forward with it or not I had a text on Sunday saying hey go ahead mobilize let's get rolling on this you know we're going to start this drive-through I'm like all right cool how many patients are we going to see don't know well how many hours are we going to be open don't know well how long is the site going to be here for no we don't know yet like, all right, well, when does it need to open by? Wednesday. <laughs> so we were like, uh. oh, gosh. Um, so we mobilized a lot of people and a lot of equipment very quickly. Um, and so Tom and our senior leadership came out, and we jumped. It was actually 93,000 square feet. Most of it was for queuing of cars and pine defense. And uh, Tom actually came out, and we jumped in a, a golf cart thing that we had out there because it was too long to walk. And we were driving around, and he was like, every question I asked you, it seemed to, like, jump up by $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> what this thing was going to cost. And, um, but we knew in emergency management, it's one of those things you, you, you try to prepare for the worst and at that point. And um, it just was funny because he called me on the first day. He's like, how many patients did we see? And I was like, 17. And he goes, oh, man. <laughs> but it, shortly after that, you know, we really picked up and we were doing hundreds of patients and then we're up around the thousand mark and then, you know, over the thousand mark on a daily basis. So it just took a little bit for, you know, to get rolling. But it was kind of it was like, oh, we did 17 and we put up this massive right. drive through, <laughs> um, that type of thing. But it ended up working out really well for us. What I like about that story is uh, looking outside of healthcare for inspiration. And, and I think that sometimes in a healthcare environment, we forget to sort of look outside at other best practices. And so the fact that you looked at Chick-fil-A, right, and the fact that you looked at NASCAR um, in terms of, you know, how do we actually look outside of what we're doing in the way that we do it for, for inspiration in terms of how we may be able to do it, I think is a great example of how you know, we can translate some of these things back to what we're doing. And it's a great example. Well, you had mentioned another uh, innovation. Yeah. So along that journey that, that Eric was on, you know, cars are great if you have a car and can yeah, get to a right. drive through line. Um, but not everyone has one. And so, you know, we came upon maybe not the second, but another pain point along this journey that, that Eric was in charge of managing. And, and that was how do you test patients that don't have a vehicle to get to one of these testing sites. And, uh-huh. um, and so do you want to talk a little bit about your, your solution there? So it was actually twofold. One, it was the examples of how do we take testing out to the population and not everybody can jump in a car and it's not like anybody wanted to Uber at the time to go to get tested. Right. Um, and you know, we had that happen. So, you know, I would just be terrified if I was a driver at that point of wanting to take somebody to get tested. Right. So it was that, but how do we bring testing out to communities? How do we do it safely? But yet on the other hand, we also had another point that we were, we were struggling with was PPE. How do we do that so we don't burn through a lot of PPE? So this, the genesis of this, the story with the portable testing pod, we, we got on the phone with the city of Charleston and we were all talking, how do we do an effective but safe walk-up testing tent or a testing hut or something like that? And we're like, we really don't have it. You know, it's how do you do this? You can't bring, at the time we weren't bringing people into buildings you really had to wear the head-to-toe PPE at all times, you know, that type of thing, and, and nobody really had staffing for it at the time either. So that hour phone call that we had set up literally ended in about 10 minutes, and, you know, they were like, well, this doesn't seem to make sense right now. I guess that's it. I don't know. My thing is, is there's no is always a yes to another question, right? So how do we kind of work around that? Um, 
So David was on the phone and he actually helped us map out the West Ashley testing site. And he's an architect by trade, professor of architecture. And he was like, we can figure this out. I was like, I know we can figure this out. So what we ended up, we had to think through a, a testing pod that we could actually take out somewhere and leave for a day or two, then pick it up and move it somewhere else. So it has to be able to be moved. Um, it has to be able to be cleaned. It has to be able to be clean on the inside for our care team because limited PPE, right? So we wanted to take the burn on that. And it had to be something that we could do pretty efficiently. So we came up with a portable testing pod. And it's actually made, and you're all going to laugh, it's actually made from a porta potty shell, an ADA porta potty shell. And the reason why we selected that is you think about how many times they're moved around, bumped around, thrown off a truck, so on and so forth. A very sturdy type, uh, type of plastic. But also, too, think how many times that thing has to be sanitized. So all the chemicals that we put on it doesn't break down the plastic. So that's why we, sh we chose that shell. Now, we took out the bathroom portion of it. <laughs> so we put shelves in it, um, and we put a big glass face on the front of it so you could see your patients. It had a microphone that goes back and forth so you can talk, a pass-through window so we could pass the tests out from clean out to the dirty section, out to the air. Um, and then also it was air-conditioned and could be heated in the, in the cold. And the nice thing about it was positive pressure. So we wanted to keep the bad bugs out. So we were able to HEPA filter it, positive pressure the inside of that. So all our tester had to do was wear gloves and a mask on the inside. Nice. So and we were able to saving some PPE a lot yeah, right there. Exactly. Huh? Yeah, exactly. So we're looking at probably all said and done, you're looking at a little over $5,000 per pod, um, which if you think about what you'd burn in PPE during a hot period of time, you'd probably do that in an hour or so, um, where you would be able to take this testing pod out multiple times and use it. So MUSC purchased 30 of them, and then we uh, kind of deployed them throughout the state, and we used them. So we tested thousands of patients through that um, through that model. So it was pretty interesting to be able to see that go from test model to you know actual out to fruition and actually testing folks. I love the no is yes to another question, and I assume that you've got to start with unused porta johns as your starting point. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, so we actually worked with the company. So they're all injection molded, right? So if you think of like a porta potty, it's got vents on the outside and all these openings to help with airflow, stuff like that. We don't want that because we wanted to seal these up. So um, we worked with uh, Trash Girl and some other companies, um, and they actually helped us kind of ejection mold, like our molding, which is a little different than the other ones. So they kind of saw the plan. And uh, Metters Construction are actually the ones that put it together. So we had a lot of folks that were outside of MUSC, our partners, or people that we thought I, that I would never have guessed to be our partners, step up and say, hey, we want to help or we, let's work through this together. Um, so like I said, I mean, they were pretty self-sufficient. You literally plugged them in. It had eight different outlets in there, had lights, shelving. You could plug computers. Um, they all had their own uh, WAP with their internet we, so they could access our internet from wherever they're at using like cell cards. So it was, they were pretty self-contained. It was pretty exciting to see them out and working. Innovation seems to be your lifeblood. I would imagine your type of job that's you, you are constantly having to innovate. Sure. Um, and so that's what's so exciting about having you here is that you're, you're really a proponent for that as a concept of a way of life, a behavior. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future. What, what, are, what innovations are you thinking about right now and how are you applying them for maybe current issues that you weren't expecting? Sure. You know, look at the health system. Look at how far MUSCs now is expanded into the state. And one of the things is how do we train everybody? How do you train a 24-7 operation throughout the state? It's very manpower intensive. Um, let's be honest, how do you 
do training that's entertaining, right? I, let, I mean, I know that's some if some of my emergency manager friends might cringe when I say that because I watch them cringe when I say that. I was like, it has to be somewhat entertaining or fun um, to get people to want to do it. So one of the things we're doing is this is not a test. It's our emergency management and safety podcast. So we're actually in the process of recording those. By the end of September, um, we'll have about uh, eight of them uh, recorded. So we'll start releasing them after. So how do we train that? So we're taking it and we're actually, our podcast is two different sections. It's a three to five minute blurb and then also the full podcast on the back end. So what we're going to do is for the health system, um, we already have a mechanism in place. We have huddles all the time, whether it be ambulatory, inpatient, whether it be, you know, in the university, people are huddling and talking about, you know, this week's projects, so on and so forth. So we have leadership support. So what we're going to do is for the first three to five minute portion of this, we're going to pass it out. And during a huddle once a month, we're going to do an emergency management topic. At the bottom of that, um, however, we're going to deliver it via email or how we want to do that, there's going to be a Teams link. You, if you have a question, you can hit that Teams link, and all the emergency managers are going to be sitting there waiting to answer your question. So you kind of like have your own personal emergency manager waiting to say, hey, we heard you talk about this. Can you talk about it a little more? What do we do here? We might need some extra training. Can you kind of help us do that? We'll do that all right during that Teams link. But so, for example, let's say I listen to a podcast. I'm like, that's really interesting. I want to know more. We'll also link the full show, which could be 25 minutes to 30 minutes on the back end with our you know, experts that you can actually just kind of tune in and listen at that point and kind of get more information. Uh, tell me a little bit about the podcast that you said you've done eight episodes. Now, like what kind of stuff can, will we hear on that? Sure. Podcast? So we have um, active shooter. We have uh, one of our students in dental medicine. Her name's Rebecca. She actually went through an active shooter situation. So she actually agreed to come out and talk about her situation, like what happened to her. And then, you know, we'll have, for example, the state fire marshal's office is coming down um, to do a podcast about fire safety and why that's important. We have crosswalk safety and uh, situational awareness training. Um, you know, one of the first things our care team do, and I'm guilty of it too, is you leave work. The first thing you want to do is stick your head in your phone and go to your text messages when you should be actually watching when you're crossing the street. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, workplace violence, what to do during a situation if you needed to um, get help or if something was happening at work, you know, what our rights are and how MUSC protects us. So it's really just taking those big chunks that are, is currently happening to our care team, the ones that, um, that are always reporting, hey, this is happening at work or something bad and, and giving them that kind of that tool to help them move and, and potentially more information after. We actually have started our, our active shooter, we call it our phase two training. So our active shooter training where we use Nerf guns, we teach uh, our care team and students how to barricade and what does it mean to actually run, hide and fight. It's really easy to say run, hide, fight. What does that actually mean? Um, so you We'll have that training. It takes about three hours. So during your workday, you would go and do the training. So most of the time, it's in the afternoon. So you'd work the first party workday and then go to that. Um, Alice is Edwards for ambulatory is a strong proponent of it. Ambulatory has done this for the past, I don't know, probably five years now. So um, we've trained about 100 care teams so far in the past two months. Um, we're going to see 100 this. 100 teams? 100 care team members. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, 100 yeah, care yeah, team yeah. members. Um, so we've trained about 100 in the past couple of months. And we want to do more. It's just trying to, how do we kind of figure out with manpower? Because there's only so many of us that can teach. So um, how do we do that? Um, and then our next step is kind of like the dessert. I call them our kind of our 
full-scale hands-on type trainings is we do a live-action shooter drill. And we're working with North Charleston this time, and it works out to be about 100 people that are there. Um, so we put our care team in their normal work environment. They come in their normal work clothes. They have patients that they see. We, they all have some type of activity that they're working on because it really lowers that anxiety because you know what type of training you're there yeah, for. You right, know it's coming. Right. But what we do is for about first 15 or 20 minutes, we try to lower that anxiety for them. We have actors out there. They'll come and talk to you, have good conversations with you, ask you where the bathrooms are, the water fountains. So we really get your mind off of it. And then the situation happens. So this goes all the way from the shooter coming in to the facility, the police response in to neutralize the shooter, and then what their response would be to get our care team out of that building if it were, you know, if it were to ever happen, we hope not, but if it were to ever happen, our care team kind of get that feeling of this is how we should react, you know, that type of thing. And it's very interesting is because you can see folks that have had that active shooter training, they know what to do instantly because you've had that muscle memory, you know what that training is. I always say there's fight, flight, and freeze. I can trade in the freeze out of you. There's no doubt. I mean, with the fire department and stuff like that, we can train the freeze out of you. Um, but we want you to get out. And you see that. When you see that training and these people um, that have been through that training, they know exactly what to do. And then you see ones that haven't went through that training, um, what the difference response is there. So um, it just kind of just bolsters that need for that training. And we're looking as an organization, how do we do that more for our care team? Eric, you know, on this um, podcast, we talk about innovation, and I typically define it as a creative solution to a pain point, and um, you are just exceptionally good at this. Um, I should mention that that you were Dr. Cole's recipient of the Values in Action Award last year for innovation just because of all of the various things that, that you do, but I'm curious how you think about innovation and, and what's your internal motivation as you're you know working on problem solving. So thank you for that. I feel like you could just end right there. I'm like, it was those nice words, <laughs> I'm out. Um, no, I, you know, I think innovation, so I've always looked at innovation, there's two things, you have imagination and innovation, right? It's the cross point is in my mind what innovation is, where you take that idea, something that you thought up. I, I literally have a little brown book. It's about this big. Um, it's about the size of a deck of cards. It's leather bound, and it literally has just a bunch of ideas in it. And it's that cross point over from imagination to innovation. And innovation to me is something where you take it to that next level. But I think there's more to it than just that one person trying to take it to the next level. I think the, an organization that values innovation, leadership, so for example, my leaders that value innovation, the ones that say, hey, if you want to try it, go ahead. Because um, we know not everything is going to work or you know, it might not be the best time first time around. How do we, how do we change this or it doesn't make sense? So that's what it means to me. Innovation is taking that imagination to that next step of to action at that point. To me, innovation is almost like a verb at that point. You're taking it and going with it, if that makes sense. Um, for me, I've always been a mind in the cloud. How do you, how do you, you know, educate that next uh, set of people. I, I think when you're, you know, you're years into your career, you have a lot of experience to give. Um, that's what I talked about before, that street cred. You can have all the letters and initials after your name, that's fine, but, you know, you really need that experience to be able to pass on. You don't want to waste that. That was hard-earned experience, whether it be blood, sweat, and tears, long hours, you know, failures, you know, all that stuff. You kind of you conglomerate into one thing, how do you pass that on to somebody else so to make their lives better or an organization better with an idea? So that's kind of what always drives me to the next one is like, what can we do to be better? And how do we do that where it's 
I'm going to say it again, entertaining, that makes somebody <laughs> want to kind of jump on board to do that too. Yeah. So what words of encouragement would you give to somebody, you know, to really help them understand how do you go from imagination to positive impact? Because it's a hard transition to make, right? And to get past that inertia barrier, figure out how to get started. So what advice would you give to a listener who has ideas, but isn't sure how to get started? Number one, don't be afraid. I think a lot of it is like, I could fail. You know, I could do this. I could pitch this idea and they could laugh me right out of the room. Um, I think that's number one. Number two, surround yourself with people that are like-minded. Um, I think, you know, having that positive energy, but also having people that are like-minded to tell you, hey, that's probably not the right time, you know, that type of thing. Also have a good mentor, um, whether it be your your leader at work or maybe there's another leader around MUSC or in your life that or is going to give you that positive reinforcement, but also give you that um, constructive criticism to say, hey, this is what I think, and being able to accept that constructive criticism and not take things personal. That's the other thing, too, is somebody says, hey, that's a great idea, but don't be afraid of that but, because they might have already tried something along those lines, failed, so let's take that, and how can we kind of, you know, turn this around to make it where it is something positive? So don't be afraid, ask for help, surround yourself with like-minded people, and find a mentor. I think that's great advice. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today and for everything you do to be part of the innovation community here at MUSC. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.